And now we come to the scripture itself and the exposition of it. And before we do that, I just want to remind you of where we've been so far. So just to remind you where we're at in the book of Matthew. Remember, we talked about, we did an overview of the book of Matthew. We did an overview of it. And we talked about how it's broken up into components. And really the first component, the first section we're in, deals with the presentation of the king. From chapter 1 through chapter 7, uh, it's really Matthew showing us that Jesus is the Christ. And he will do that throughout the whole gospel, but in particular, as he enters his gospel, he's presenting Christ to us. He's presenting the king to us. And really, what we did last week, if you remember last week, we walked through the genealogy. We walked through the genealogy, and what the genealogy is doing is it's presenting the credentials of Jesus to be the Christ. He's showing that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, we talked about the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. It alludes back to Genesis and to even Adam. That's the only time that other phrase is found to show us that Jesus is that last Adam. That's what the genealogies and scripture are all about, is showing us that Jesus is that last Adam, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so Matthew presents that that credential, that list, to show that, yes, indeed, from Abraham through David, from David to the Christ, Jesus at least has the legal right to the throne. And remember how this fits into Matthew's overarching purpose. For his gospel, Matthew has the overarching purpose of uh, calling his audience to swear allegiance to the king, to Jesus as king, to seek first his kingdom and to follow the king. And so he's building his case from the very outset. He is showing that Christ has those credentials. But you also remember, as we ended last week, verse 16 had an anomaly in it, didn't it? It had an anomaly. Look at verse 16 in Matthew 1. It says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and that whom there is feminine in the original Greek, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So there we said that Matthew is he's separating uh, versus everything else in the genealogy where we see a father begetting a son, here we see something different, where Matthew's intentionally separating and showing that Joseph didn't beget Jesus, not in the, that, the way that everyone else in the genealogy has. Rather, he is born of Mary. But now, well, he has to explain that. He didn't really explain it in verse 16, but now he is going to explain it uh, from verses 18 through 25. He's going to elaborate on what that process was, what that process was. And really what Matthew's going to do in that and where we're going this morning, what his main idea for this text and what we need to take away from this morning is this, Jesus' conception was absolutely holy so that he could save his sinful people. That's, that's the point of this text, and that's where we're going. It's, it, Matthew's going to explain for us the conception of Jesus, but he's at pains to show that that was a holy conception. Jesus' conception was absolutely holy. Why? So that he could save his sinful people. That's where we're going this morning. So we're going to see uh, three main sections in the text. The righteous plan for apparent unbelief in verses 18 through 19. The reassurance of absolute holiness in verses 20 through 23. And the righteous action because of absolute holiness in verses 24 through 25. And so we're, as we walk through this, 
The emphasis is on holiness and the holiness, the absolute holiness of this conception. So let's look at the text, verses 18 through 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, it's interesting here in verse 18, now the birth, really that word for birth, is actually the same word as genealogy back up in verse 1. It's the same exact word, and the reason Matthew's doing it, he's connecting the two. He's saying the generation of Jesus Christ, this is how it happened. He's elaborating on what we just said. He's elaborating on verse 16. How did it happen? There's this anomaly in verse 16. It's unusual. Well, what actually happened? What actually happened? It took place in this way, and that's what he's explaining. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, we need to pause there for a second and understand betrothal in that culture and in that time. What is betrothal? Well, you see, in that time, in that culture, you would have a two-stage process uh, to be married. So we're talking first century Palestine. What did uh, that look like? Well, first, there would be an agreement, often agreement between the the man's parents and the, the woman's parents that these uh, these, th- this man and this woman would get married. And so what would happen is that uh, maybe when the uh, girl was about 12 to 14 and when the guy was about 18, uh, they would forge an agreement, that there would be an agreement that this man and this woman would get married, that they would be promised to each other is the idea of this betrothal. Uh, and legally, legally, it had legal force to it, legally they were man and wife. The only difference is there was about a year period between that first stage of betrothal and then uh, them coming and living together. The man would come to the the gal's uh, parents' house and he would take his bride and then he would bring her to live with him in his home. And that would correspond with the actual wedding ceremony. So legally, they're promised to each other. Legally, they're married. Legally, they're husband and wife and yet they... wouldn't live together until the final formal marriage process. And that's what's going on here. So Mary and Joseph have been betrothed. They've been promised. She's been legally promised to Joseph. She's legally his wife. And yet between that year period, between being promised to Joseph and the actual marriage ceremony, when they come to live together and all that that means, she's found to be with child. She's found to be um, pregnant. And the text says, and Matthews at pains to stress, that, uh, that what happened in that, that gap year, right, uh, was ultimately formed from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph does not know that, but Matthew wants his readers to know that, that despite what would seemingly be an unholy uh, situation, that this is indeed from the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But Joseph doesn't know that yet. And so we look in Joseph's mindset and his plan for apparent unholiness. All he sees is an apparent unholy situation. Uh, Mary was uh, promised to him as his wife. 
legally from the law, if you were to look back at Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24, uh, um, you, uh, the woman would be pro- promised to the man, and she would be his wife, and if something like this happened, he would have grounds for divorce. The only way to break this betrothal relationship was the same way you would break a marriage, through death or through divorce. And so uh, even if Mary told him, uh, apparently Mary knows, if you look at Luke, apparently Mary knows where this was from. It might even be, uh, as Matthew speaks, that before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That might be kind of an oblique way of referring that she knows where the child is from, but Joseph doesn't know. And even if Mary told Joseph, uh, uh, it it would be uh, a once and really this is a once-in-humanity experience. So the probability is that Mary is lying and that she's trying to cover her tracks uh, in one level or another. So Joseph, by all that he can see and by all that he knows, this is what's happened. She was promised to me to be my wife, and yet she has been unfaithful. And so... The law and the law at this time would essentially demand, not just permit, but demand a divorce. Demand a divorce. And so if he wants to be righteous, that's how the text describes him, and her husband Joseph being a just man or a righteous man, to be righteous and to fulfill the law would demand that he divorce Mary. Uh, That's what the law would demand. To maintain his integrity, to maintain his righteousness, he would need to demand, or he would need to divorce Mary. But here's the other side of it. Uh, in, in Matthew, righteousness really is that idea of conformity to God's standard. But not only is Joseph wanting to conform to the, the, the standard, the letter of the law, but justice and righteousness are also mixed with mercy and compassion. And that's what we see in that second phrase there, an unwilling, not willing, not desiring to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's going to divorce her because that's the right thing to do, given what he perceives as an an unholy situation. That's the right thing for him to do, and yet he's also mingling it with compassion. He does not want Mary to be put to shame. And so the minimum that the law would require would be to write a certificate of divorce with two or three witnesses. If he, if he demanded the, the, the full extent of the law, it would be a public uh, exposure of Mary before the whole city and everyone would know what had happened and what has gone on. But Joseph doesn't demand that. He, he um, is probably demanding, or at the very least, he's trying to do it quietly. So certificate of divorce, two or three witnesses, let's keep it as quiet as possible. Let's be merciful to her. And so, really, this is a righteous plan, given what Joseph knows, at least. All he knows at this point, this is a righteous plan for apparent unholiness. It is the right thing to do. And yet, it's justice mingled with mercy. So, as he's contemplating these things, we move into the reassurance of absolute holiness, the reassurance of absolute holiness in verses 20 through 23. Look at verse 20, it says this, but as he considered these things, or really after he considered these things, he goes to bed, is kind of the idea, it seems like. 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, that, when the angel addresses him as Joseph, son of David, uh, he's really it's highlighting what's at stake. We know from the genealogy that Joseph is indeed the heir to the Davidic throne. He is in line to, of the line that's promised to have the ultimate king come from it. If Joseph doesn't essentially adopt Jesus, then Jesus can't have the legal right to the throne. And so uh, even that address to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, it highlights what's at stake here. Will the Messiah, will the one who's in Mary's womb have the right to the Davidic throne or not? And you remember what's at stake with that. It's not just it's the whole world, right? Because we've got the Davidic covenant that promises a king to reign, a righteous king to reign over the throne of David forever, and not just over Israel, but all the nations of the world to restore them to Edenic rest, to be that final Adam, to be that last Adam. Everything is at stake. And from what Joseph sees, his plan is righteous. I'm going to divorce Mary. I don't want any part of this. And And it's right for him based on what he knows to do that. So what does he need? He needs divine revelation to to explain what has happened. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That's essentially what he's fearing. He's fearing, well, if I take Mary as wife, here's his situation, right? If he takes Mary as wife and he, he knows the child is not from him, he knows that, then what is he doing? Well, He's, he's essentially, at one level, condoning sin on the part of Mary, or what he perceives as sin on the part of Mary. He's condoning that. Or, uh, even on the flip side, what's the, everyone else going to think? If he marries Mary, right, everyone else is going to think, oh, that's, that's what happened. It's, it's uh, Joseph's child, right? And there's shame involved in that. So he's fearing that, right? He wants to maintain his righteous reputation he wants to maintain his integrity and so he's this is this is what's driving him but the angel says do not fear to take mary as your wife why and what the why of this is really uh, the reassurances the angel gives for joseph he reassures him on multiple levels and there's really three levels at which the angel uh, reassures him so the first thing he says, the angel says, is this, for, for that which is conceived in her, and that language for conceived, it's actually the same word as begotten uh, that we saw in the genealogy. It's the same word. That which has been conceived in her, that which has been begotten in her, is from the Holy Spirit. The source of the child that's in Mary's womb was not a human father at all. The source of the child that's in Mary's womb was the Holy Spirit, God himself. God the Spirit, by a creative act, by a creative act, produced the child that was in Mary's womb. And what's interesting here is the way it's phrased, the the word order actually in the original suggests that that the the idea of holiness is being emphasized. So literally it's... uh, Uh, that which is in her is from the Spirit, the Holy One. It's the Holy Spirit, right? This is holy what's happening in Mary. And despite all appearances externally, despite the apparent unholiness of this 
this pregnancy, it's actually the most holy pregnancy that you could ever possibly have because the source of this child is the Holy Spirit himself. So that's the first reassurance for him, a holy conception. This, this is a creative act by the Holy Spirit. This has only happened once. This has only happened once. But then the reassurance keeps coming. Not only is there a holy conception here because of the source of this is from the Holy Spirit, there's also a holy name involved that, that reinforces this. Uh, look at verse 21. Angel continues, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this pregnancy is going to come about. She's going to bear a son. But notice here what's interesting, the, the right of naming the son is given to Joseph. Joseph's the one who's supposed to name Jesus. Why? Because as soon as Joseph names Jesus, he is identifying with Jesus as his earthly father. Essentially, he's adopting Jesus once he names the child. He's, he's owning him in that sense, right? That I am taking responsibility. I am identifying with Jesus as his earthly father in an adoptive sense, and I'm transferring legal rights. That act of naming is a legal transaction, trans giving Jesus legal rights that Joseph himself has, legal rights to the throne of David. But why name him Jesus? And this is the important point, right? This, this, re, these reassurances, they keep building, right? Okay, it's enough to say that this, what's in Mary's womb, is from the Holy Spirit. Wow, um, that's, that's incredible, but it's true, it's from a messenger of the Lord who's delivering this direct to Joseph. But then you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek version of the name Joshua. Joshua, and what Joshua means is Yahweh saves. So there's a play on words, and then you, you, this happens a lot in the Bible. You'll see this especially in Genesis. There's a play on words, and the, the naming is significant because of what the child is or is supposed to do or the hope for the child. And so what we have here is the name, uh, essentially Joshua, Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Why? For he, and it's emphatic in the original, he himself will save his people from their sins. Now, wait a minute. Jesus' name is Joshua. So that means Yahweh saves. So who's doing the saving? Yahweh God is doing the saving. But then it says, for he, he himself, referring back to Jesus, will save his people from their sins. So who's doing the saving there? Jesus is doing the saving. So you see how this works, right? Uh, this child is not only conceived by a creative act by the Holy Spirit, this child is Yahweh. Because this Yahweh, Yahweh is the one to save his people from their sins. But yet it's Jesus himself who will save his people from their sins. This is God in the womb. 
with a human nature added to a divine nature. You might ask the question, right, what do people need saving from most, right? If you were to go out in the world, right, and it would be interesting to go and stand on a corner uh, downtown Hood River and ask, what, what, what's humanity's greatest problem? What do, what do you need saving from? Or just even ask them directly, what do you need? What do you most need in life? What, what do you need? What do you need saving from? What do you need deliverance from? You know, we might hear a lot of different answers. Well, we need more education. Or we need, uh, we need uh, you know, better uh, a redistribution of wealth. So everyone has, is on the same page, right? We, we, or any number of things that we could think of that our culture might say that we need most as a race or as an individual. I need my circumstances changed. I need better health. I need, uh, I need more money. I need more time. I need more sleep. I need uh, any number of things that we could think of that an individual or then even escalating it to a societal level what we need saving from. And certainly the Jews in first century Israel at this time, what do they think they need deliverance from? They need deliverance from Rome, right? This oppressive government, this foreign government that's, that's taxing us. And we have these unjust kings. We have these unjust religious rulers. There's all these horrible circumstances. It's, it's hard to even live in this society. And so they are certainly thinking of they need deliverance they, from these circumstances, from these circumstances, and that's really what it boils down to when you say things like that. I need deliverance from my circumstances, as bad as they may be. But when God comes, when a conception this holy happens, well, what is the need for it? Why does God need to come? God needs to come to save his people from their sins. Now, that's amazing. Think about that for a second. God becoming man is the most miraculous thing that's ever happened. So you think of the height and the majesty and the holiness of this miracle and how absolutely holy it is. Think of how great and how high and magnificent that is. So the need for that to happen must be equally magnificent but in a negative direction. Think about that, right? Why does God need to become a man? That's magnificent. That's unprecedented. Why is God here? Because of sin. Because of his people sin. It's not because of their circumstances. It's not because of their difficulties. It's because of their sin. I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and this individual was basically saying, well, you believe what you believe because you were raised in a good home and you were, had all that you needed, and so you believe this stuff because you were raised in a good home, right? And if you were raised in a bad home and you had terrible circumstances and horrible things happening to you, you would not believe this. You would essentially trust in yourself to overcome. What I tried to say to this gentleman is that it doesn't matter how good of circumstances you have in life or how bad of circumstances you have in life. Your fundamental problem is sin. Because we will all die. All of us will die. We know from everything that's around us in the created world, there is one who has eternal power and divine nature. And since he created all things, he created me and I'm held accountable to him. And sin, what is sin? Sin is not doing naughty things. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a disease. 
sin is exchanging the glory, the majesty, the beauty of the infinite creator for something that is not the creator. We were designed to be satisfied infinitely in God himself. We can see the majesty and the goodness of God in the created order, and yet we trade him. That's the essence of sin, the trade. The trade for something that is not something, someone who is infinitely valuable, infinitely satisfying, infinitely enjoyable for the things that he has created. That's money or fame or prestige or any of it, whether it's being liked by your friends, thought popular, it doesn't matter. You're exchanging the creator for the creature. And that, my friends, is an infinite offense against an infinitely worthy God. And he will hold you accountable for it when you die. The greatest need for all of us, the greatest greatest horror that would demand that God become a man is his people's sin. And really, it's his sins, people from their sins. It's not just a sin, although one sin would be enough to condemn us before a holy God. It is sins, sins we commit every day in our hearts, what we do in our minds, our actions, our attitudes. All of it, God holds under his just, infinitely just and holy microscope and will hold each and every one of us accountable. And an infinite offense against an infinite God deserves an infinite justice, which deserves an infinite hell, infinite conscious torment at God's hands because we are such horrific sinners. That is the truth. We are a planet of criminals, not a planet of good people, not people needing more education, not people needing more wealth, not people needing more economic advancement, not people needing ultimately more racial justice. We need our sins forgiven. We need our sins forgiven. And that is why God the Son became man to save his people from their sins. And first and foremost, his people speaks to Israel. That word for people is a common word for Israel, the people, and it's used throughout Matthew. But even looking ahead, Matthew is thinking about those who swear allegiance to Christ, those who entrust themselves to Christ. Christ didn't die for everyone. He died for his people, those who would entrust themselves to him. For those and those alone who entrust themselves to Christ, can that issue of sinfulness be dealt with? And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Matthew's even picturing forward and looking forward to what Jesus will do. And think about this. Jesus didn't come uh, to just deal with the penalty of sin, taking God's wrath on himself for, every, for his people's sin and giving them his righteousness in their place. That would be enough. That's, that's dealing with the penalty of sin. But you and I know as Christians, we still sin, don't we? We still trade every day the cre- creator for the creature. We still trade God for a living for ourselves. And Christ has dealt with those sins, the penalty for those sins at the cross, but we know we need the power to not do sin at all. To, to not give in, to not, to, to not make that horrific exchange. In this side of heaven, we can't. 
We, 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 we continually give in, and so what we need is not only saving from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin in our lives. Now, we are safe from the power of sin. There is never a time when, in Christ, we need to give in to sin, and yet we do, and we know there is still the presence of sin in our lives and natures, and we need Christ. We need a Savior who will deliver his people from their sins. So, I digress, but it, emphasizing what the angel is doing in, to Joseph, right? He's emphasizing this is a holy conception. And the one who's in the womb it has a holy name, the one who will save his people from their sins. Yahweh himself is coming down to save his people. But then there's a third layer to this, this reassurance, and it's a holy prophecy, a holy prophecy. Uh, look at verses 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, uh, you might notice in your translation that the quotes of the angel end at verse 21. I actually think that the angel's still speaking in verses 22 through 23. Why? Well, because Joseph, uh, the angel showed up when Joseph fell asleep and he's dreaming, right? When does Joseph wake up? Well, he doesn't wake up till verse 24, not only that, in verse 22, uh, literally you could render this, the whole of this has taken place. And that seems more immediate language, and so I think the angel is still speaking when he's speaking about the prophecy. It doesn't really matter in, as far as our interpretation is concerned, because regardless, what is being said here is that what is going on with this holy conception is that this has taken place, this is happening to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, we, this is the first time that Matthew uh, are, is going to use the word fulfill, and he's going to use it a bunch, especially in chapters 1 through 4 of his gospel. Now, here's what you need to think about when you think about uh, fulfill. Fulfill, we often think about there's a direct prediction and there's a direct fulfillment, and that's true. Oftentimes, and even here, that's what's going on. However, there are times, and Matthew's going to use this word, fulfill, when it's not, doesn't seem like he's talking about a prediction at all. And so what we have to realize when we talk about the word fulfill in Matthew is it's the word for actualization. Or you can think about it uh, in terms of, think of a, a bowl or some sort of container, right? And you're filling up that bowl, right? You might fill it up to the, to the brim, right? You're bringing that to fullness, right? Uh, that's kind of the idea of the way Matthew uses this word. It's not always about direct prediction, although I think he is doing that here. But in general, what you're going to see with this word fulfill, because he uses it a bunch, it's bringing, uh, it's actualizing even a pattern. It's filling up to the brim, uh, maybe not a direct prediction, but a pattern or, or something else. So just keep that in mind as we continue to walk through Matthew. We'll see it a lot in the coming days. Now, what, what do we see? All this took place to fulfill, to actualize, to fill up what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is quoted from Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. Now, here's the thing. When Matthew or any other New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, you shouldn't say, that's nice. He quoted the Old Testament and then move on. Because what, the, what Matthew is doing, he's expecting his readers to say, hey, you remember this verse and you remember the context surrounding it, don't you? And you remember all that was surrounding that verse. 
right? So by alluding to this one verse, he's alluding to a whole context, and he's trying to remind his readers of it, and he's making an argument with it. So to that end, let's go back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking in Isaiah 7 around 730, 730-ish BC, right? So 730 years before Jesus um, comes on to the scene. And who he's speaking to in Isaiah 7 is a guy named Ahaz. If you were to look back at the genealogy that we, in Matthew 1, uh, 2 through 16, you would see Ahaz's name there. So this is a Davidic king. He is in the line of David and has the right to the Davidic throne and the Davidic covenant. You remember the Davidic covenant, the promise that one of David's line would reign on the throne forever. Now, what's interesting here, there's politics involved. So Ahaz, there's the, southern, the northern and southern kingdom at this point have split, and Ahaz is, uh, only reigns over the tribe of Judah in the south. Right? So it's a much smaller kingdom than David reigned over or even Solomon. But he's being threatened by northern Israel, the northern kingdom, and by Syria. And uh, what Ahaz has decided to do is, instead of trusting in the Lord, he's decided to trust in uh, the superpower Assyria. All right, I'm in trouble. I've got these two uh, nations, my, my, uh, my cousins to the north, coming to attack me, and I've got Syria attacking me. Well, I need to go to Assyria, the big bad a superpower to help me out of this predicament. So he's put his trust in this, this, uh, this nation, this military, right? He's going to become a subject to this superpower so that he can be saved from this threat. And the threat here, what Ahaz is threatened with, is uh, what the, uh, Israel and Syria want to do. They want to come in and they want to remove Ahaz from the throne and they want to put some other king on the throne that's a non-Davidic king. That's what they want to do. So the threat here is not just to Judah. It's not just to Ahaz. It's a threat to the whole Davidic line. Now, what Ahaz does, uh, uh, Isaiah says, uh, we're going to be preserved. Ask for a sign. So let's pick it up in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Yahweh to the test. Now that sounds awfully, awfully good, right? Oh, I'm not going to put God to the test. Well, God just told him to ask for a sign, right? This is mock humility is what this is. And then um, what's interesting here, right? Ahaz is being spoken to and then we get to Verse 13, and he, Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David. He was just talking to Ahaz. Now he's talking to the whole Davidic line. He's talking to a whole bunch of people. Is it too little for you? And what's interesting here, that you there is plural. He's not talking to an individual anymore. He's talking to a whole dynasty. Is it too little for you, Davidic dynasty, to weary men that you, plural, weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So there's our prophecy that Matthew is quoting. Let's continue. He shall eat curds and honey, uh, which in this context is the food of poverty, 
when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Verse 16, for behold, the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings, you, now that you is singular. What just happened? Isaiah said, house of David, which is bigger than Ahaz. And then he went back to the singular. So the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy is addressed to the whole house of Israel. And then what comes after in verse 16 and following seems to specifically address Ahaz in his time. So it's a very complex prophecy. And what you need to understand is not only is Matthew quoting these He's thinking of this context in chapter 7. He's thinking of the whole context of Isaiah 7 through 9. The whole context of Isaiah 7 through 9, which speaks of basically what Ahaz just decided to do in calling Assyria down is is going to uh, ultimately lead to uh, the the subjugation of the Davidic line to such an extent that they're going to be under the thumb of of, of other powers and they're going to eventually go into obscurity. The Davidic line will go into obscurity. And you think back to uh, you think back to Matthew, right? Where did it say? From David to the deportation of Babylon. And by the time you get to the deportation of Babylon and after, the Davidic line, all those names that we've never heard of before, it's obscure. Right? So what Ahaz has done is set the nation on the trajectory of the obscurity of the Davidic line. Why was this promise given? And it's the promise is given to say that the Davidic line is going to is going to be preserved. And it's going to be ultimately preserved. And why is that good news? Why is it good news? Because the Davidic line being preserved means that the nation of Israel, king and people are tied together. The, 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 the nation of Israel will be preserved. And that king will pull them out of exile. Essentially, Ahaz has set his people on the course for exile. But a future Davidic king to fulfill Isaiah 7.14 will bring them out of exile and preserve not only the Davidic kingdom, but also Israel, also Judah. And remember, the fate of the world is tied to that Davidic king. So it's everything. In fact, if you were to skip over to Isaiah 9, I think he has Emmanuel in view here in Isaiah 9.6 for Essentially, the beginning part of Isaiah 9 says you're going to be brought out of exile. You're going to go into exile. That's basically chapter 7 and chapter 8 in Isaiah. And then chapter 9 is looking forward to this this ultimate son who's going to come and bring Israel out of exile. In verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So in its original context, Ahaz has set the path. The Davidic line is going to go into obscurity. The nation of Israel is going to go into exile. But the promise of an ultimate Davidic king to come is still coming, the fulfillment of the Isaiah 7:14 promise, which brings us back to Matthew. How is Matthew using it? He's saying that that's come to pass, that the child in the womb of Mary, the virgin, the virgin has conceived, and this will be the ultimate Davidic king. This will be God with us. 
Israel's under obscurity. They're under the thumb of, of Rome. And this king who's going to come is ultimately going to deliver not only the Davidic line, but also going to pull them and Israel in the future out of that obscurity, out of that foreign domination, and will establish Israel in its kingdom. So this is that one. This is that one. In a sense, remember the movement in the genealogy, right, to the deportation of Babylon, the exile to Babylon. Uh, Isaiah, or excuse me, Matthew, is saying that Israel is still in exile. Really, Israel, even till today, is still in exile, right? But he's saying this ultimate Davidic king, the one in Mary's womb, is going to pull Israel out of that exile. Now, this idea of God with us, Emmanuel, it's like, wait a minute. He just gave him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. That's not Emmanuel. That I can, you know, they're not the same. So why, what's he talking about? Emmanuel, God with us, often speaks in Scripture. You could look at places like Joshua 1, 5, and 9. God's with us speaks to God's conquering and delivering power. His conquering and delivering power. So if Jesus means Yahweh is salvation, and he's saving his people from their sins, then Jesus rightly has the title, God with us. He's going to save and deliver. Now, before we move on, why? Okay, we've got a virgin conceived. It's, gonna, it's going to fulfill this prophecy. You ever ask yourself the question, why is the virgin conception necessary? Like, and some evangelicals will say, well, it's not necessary. You don't need to believe that. Um, no, it's absolutely necessary, but why? Why is it necessary? Because the reality is, if you were to look back to Genesis 5, and Matthew's already alluded there, we won't go there right now, I'll just summarize for you, but Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it talks about how Adam, who fell, who's corrupted, had a son in his own likeness and image. So you start with a corrupt image, and then you replicate it, what do you get? You get a corrupt image, right? And then that corrupt image begets a son or daughter, and what happens? Well... That replication process is just replicating the image, which is already corrupt, so it's corrupt, right? So you see how from Adam, everyone who's rightly related to Adam, which is everyone in this room, uh, is inherently corrupted by sin. Inherently corrupted by sin. Uh, sin passes through the male line uh, that replicates a corrupt image. And that happens even today, right? A corrupt image having a corrupt uh, uh, replicating that corrupt image, there's corruption, there's sin, sin against God that deserves God's wrath. But at the same time, we need a, uh, we need a mediator, someone who can be human and can lay his hand on the human and lay his hand on God. So you need a holy human who can enter God's presence and yet be truly human and yet be truly God because in order to enter God's presence. So what we need is a holy human who's not in Adam, who's not connected to Adam at all, and yet is truly human to have to be that person. And that's exactly why we need a virgin conception. Because there was no human male involved, therefore no corruption of sin was passed. And so Jesus is human, and yet not in Adam at all, not connected with Adam at all. He is, he is outside the system, so to speak. That is why we need the virgin conception. So what we've seen so far this morning is we've seen the righteous plan for apparent unholiness, the 
reassurance of absolute unholiness, and then finally the righteous action because of absolute holiness. Look at verses 24 through 25. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You notice the same verbs that the, the angel talked about there. Take her as wife. Well, he did it, and the idea is he did it right away. He woke up, and he acted on this. He, 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 he took Mary as his wife. He took Mary as his wife. And not only that, but even in being married, they, he, he, he kept her a virgin until she had given birth. Now, why did he do that? Well, because the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy seems to indicate that the virgin not only would conceive as a virgin, but would also give birth as a virgin. And therefore, Joseph keeps her that way until she gives birth. And then he calls his name Jesus. And in that act, like we said, he is, he is identifying with Jesus as his human father. He is transferring the legal right to the Davidic throne to Jesus. Now, what's interesting in this is there was a cost to Joseph in doing this, wasn't there? There was a cost. The cost was shame in the society, right? Everyone would believe that this is Joseph's child. Uh, they, they, um, they came together before that year was up, uh, and Joseph is unrighteous in doing so, right? There was shame associated with this. But what drove Joseph to take that shame on himself? It was because, essentially, he believed uh, the angel, he believed who Jesus was. In a sense, he was the first disciple of Jesus. This is an absolutely holy conception. This is an absolutely holy salvation that's coming. And it is worth any shame to give that up, to be saved from my sins, and to follow the ultimate king. And as we come to application, as we finish up today, what do you need to take away from all of this? What do you need to take away from all of this? Well, first, you need to marvel at the miracle of the virgin conception by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you just need to sit and think about, that's miraculous. That's astounding. It's only happened once, and it happened by a specific act of God. And what that should do is cause you to worship the great God who would do such an amazing miracle. And subsequent to that, as we've already said, you need to hold fast to the virgin conception as absolutely necessary for salvation from sin. You cannot ditch the virgin conception. It is essential because we need a holy human who is not connected with Adam in order to save us. So you need to hold fast the virgin conception. And again, you need to marvel at the reality of God the Son adding a human nature to his divine nature. Think of that, the height of that miracle again. Why did he? Because of the height of the, 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 the thing that people needed to be saved from, sin. You need to marvel at the reality of God the Son adding a human nature to his divine nature in order to save his people from sin their sin. You need to marvel at that and rejoice in the God who has done that and has acted. And along with that, you need to recognize that my greatest problem and your greatest problem is that you need to be saved from your sin. That is the greatest need you have in life. 
Not merely from the penalty of sin, but also from the presence of sin. We need Jesus to come again and renew our bodies, to glorify our bodies, so that we are separated completely from sin. Christ did not come first and foremost to deal with the circumstances that are troublesome in your life, but he came to save you from enslavement to sin. And that's helpful as you fight against sin in your life. Even this last week, as I faced various temptations in my own life, thinking of that reality, Jesus came to save me from my sin. He came to so that I don't have to give in to the sin that I'm being tempted towards. And I, I, don't, I, I don't have any condemnation from this sin anymore. I don't, I don't want to go after it. I, I look to this reality of Jesus being my Savior from my sins And that helps me to fight. That helps me to fight. And here's where Matthew is driving, where all this leads us to. Such a holy conception, the miracles involved here, what is happening, demands allegiance and obedience, no matter the shame. Just like Joseph. He puts his readers in the shoes of Joseph. Following Christ costs you. It will cost you shame. It will cost you Many things. Jesus speaks of persecution. Jesus speaks of shame for his followers. But that should be worth, the price is worth paying because we have the ultimate king, the ultimate one who will save us. Jesus' conception was absolutely holy so that he could save his sinful people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. You are at the right hand of the Father this instant as we pray. And you are both God and man forever. You, are, you added a human nature to your divine nature. And you are the last Adam, the, the one who is outside the system to redeem us from slavery, those who have been corrupted by Adam's sin, who are enslaved to sin from birth. You've saved us. You've paid the penalty of sin. You have given us the, the, the power so that we don't have to give in to sin anymore, and you will save us when you come again from the pre- very presence of sin in our life, and we need you and we want that. Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much for your miracles, for, for doing the humanly impossible um, by sending your Son to be born of a virgin. Lord, we thank you so very much. We praise your great and awesome and holy name. We thank you even now as we transition to a baptism, to seeing that public portrayal of what you have done spiritually because you were the virgin-born Son of God. We thank you. We praise your name. Bless the rest of this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.